0: Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire and this is The Money Movement. Today I am here with Annabelle Huang, the managing partner of Amber Group, a leading uh, crypto firm here in Singapore. We're recording Money Movement live today. Annabelle, great to have you and have this conversation.
1: Thanks for having me here, Jeremy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, there's just tons going on, so much happening in crypto markets. And I think, you know, Amber Group obviously is a major firm globally now, but also very much anchored here in Asia as well. But before getting into Amber and the markets and sort of where things are headed, I'd love to just start kind of hearing a little bit of your story and, you know, kind of what brought you into crypto, what kind of brought you into this space and kind of what are some of the major things that, you know, you're motivated about as, as you work on
1: all of this? Sure. And I feel like it's been for almost five years, but felt like a lifetime since I've been in an industry. And for you, it's even longer. So I started my career in New York in investment bank. I was trading FX derivatives back in the days um, and first got involved within crypto actually through just alumni connections. A few of the Carnegie Mellon alum, they were building The very early decentralized finance applications on top of Ethereum back in 2017. Mm -hmm. I was part of a consensus project and just really got sort of red pilled by the fellow alums and, and convinced that this is a new way of doing finance. And moved to Hong Kong actually to look at the Asia market. And but I think the challenge was that there's very low liquidity. In, within the DeFi space back then, there's yeah. not enough infrastructure, infrastructure space itself is just so nascent. The U, UI, UX is horrendous, mm-hmm. if you remember. All right. And then realized the need to actually having more centralized or a C5 platform mm-hmm. to s- sort of soothe the, the path into crypto for a lot of the new users. And that's when I started Amber almost five years ago now in Hong Kong continue to build upon the space. Most of the senior management also came from different traditional finance background. So we're always security and compliance first. And really, over the years, improving our own risk management abilities. And I think that really helped us um, stay relevant and continue to grow over very volatile market cycles.
0: Yeah, big time. So when you were kind of finding your, your way early on, so you're saying like 2017 and 2018, that was actually right when like we were inventing usdc and, yeah. and rolling out usdc and i remember very well like the very first defi projects were sort of happening then you could you could kind of see like the vision of what was going to be possible and it's interesting it seemed to me at the time like i didn't know how long it would take until some of these things really took off in some ways it happened faster like in 2020 when you had yeah. the defi summer and some of that just i think it surprised us how how fast you know some some of those things happen but you know from a you know coming back to your own original uh, interest in this when you think about you know kind of what is this going to do for financial markets what is this going to mean in in terms of the sort of the traditional roles in traditional finance kind of moving over to a digital asset native world what do you see that looking like
1: it's a very interesting question because that landscape has changed so much over the last Four years. I think when we initially started, not that many quote-unquote traditional financial institutions are even entertaining the idea of doing anything within crypto. But I think now that, that existential question is past us. They all or we all realize that crypto is here to stay. We might have differences in terms of where we think the use cases or the future de- development goes to. But I think we have established ourselves as a more mainstream asset space. Uh, compared to early days. And then I think for for us, what we are anchoring on um, has always just been to build upon open access. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, and also on transparency, I think this is what DeFi or just blockchain in general was able mm-hmm. to bring. And I think we, we also discussed this in the past where there's financial stress in the market. You can see how traditional financial market and the very... Crypto native on-chain market reacts to it. And it's fascinating to see. And I think we've been learning our lessons. And I think this space is continuing to grow and to mature. And I think every time we go through this, we'll just be able to come out of it much stronger.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we'll come back to the current kind of things that have happened in the market and where 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 we go from here and and all that in a little bit. I want to kind of come back too to the sort of what makes Asia so unique in this market and, and you know I remember in twenty thirteen I was the, f- the first time I was asked to testify to Congress testify to the Senate in November of twenty thirteen and and I remember Bitcoin price rallied to thousand dollars the day of the of the Senate hearings that I was involved in and but it was all China. It was all like Chinese you know traders who were basically saying, oh the u s is not going to ban Bitcoin and so everyone was like, this is amazing but the interest in digital assets, the interest in this, in many ways, like Asia has led the narrative, even though there's all these companies in the West and there's activity, but it's it's been such a big part of the narrative. And with Amber for the last five years, you know, I'd be interested just to hear what makes this such a powerful market in Asia? Why is Asia playing such an outsized role in all of this?
1: I think there are a couple of reasons. I think, first of all, Asia, or China specifically, being less of a developed market, or by that I mean sort of the financial infrastructure, mm-hmm. in terms of access to global liquidity or, or FX, banking infrastructure, credit card, it's very different, right? Mm-hmm. That gave the rise to a lot of the super apps within China yeah. that served, that had that sort of window of opportunity. We, we skipped the whole sort of desktop era and went right. straight to mobile. We don't really use credit cards. It's all sort of Alipay, tap Pay. So there's that. And I think that's prevalent in Asia, not just in China. So Southeast Asia, even Korea and Japan all yeah. have their own ecosystem of this. So when it comes to money, right, we, we don't feel like our own fiat is as easy um, or as global as, as dollar. So mm-hmm. when there's an alternative, like, that we discovered is mm-hmm. actually very interesting. we were using, a lot of times, the early stable coins right, mm-hmm. as cross-border payments because yeah. it's very difficult to do it otherwise. Yeah. Um, so there's that kind of initial adoption. And I think, um, let's not forget, I think a lot of the, the Asian uh, traders and the participants, they really see it as a speculative asset, especially mm-hmm. early days. Uh, and I think combined with the fact that um, actually, Asia had a lot of pricing power because all the mining was happening in China and wherever there's cheap uh, electricity. Mm-hmm. So, and that was back when the market cap was much, much smaller than right. where we are today. So, actually, I think even just a few of the, the miners or a few of the trading shops or exchanges back then would have a lot of pricing power in the market. And I think that that's what made Asia a very prominent place to be. And I think a lot of projects want to spawn out of China or Asia in general. And then you see this very vibrant community, despite the fact that from a regulatory stance it's not always supportive. But then I think at least for from 2017 until 2021 almost, mm-hmm. they've kind of acquiesced that it, things could happen if you're building on technology and all of that. But I think what happened after May of 2021 that landscape has changed a lot, especially with what happened with with miners. Yeah, and now they've all moved overseas. A lot of them in the Texas. U.S. Yeah, <laughs> Texas, exactly. Yeah. If not elsewhere, yeah. that I think that, that has changed really significantly. Uh, a lot of the projects or VCs moved out. Mm-hmm. Some of them in uh, in Singapore actually. Mm-hmm. But then I think that sort of pricing power has really been distributed again, which could be a good thing for the industry if we're really aiming for a truly distributed and decentralized market.
0: Yeah. One of the things that you said, maybe I, w- I want to pick up on a little, which is, you know, I think sort of in the region, it feels like the average person or, or household, like they're just, they're more aware of fundamental kind of questions about what is the money that you have? What is the store of value? What do I control versus the government control? And it's like, these are questions that I think are just more visceral, like more apparent to people. That's very different than, you know, I think in certainly in the United States. And so in some ways, like there's just, there's a greater awareness around what this all means in Asia, which, you know, I'd be interested if you think that, you know, that's the case. Is there, and, and also maybe the, all this has like geopolitical, geoeconomic implications, right? And I also feel like people are more aware of that as well in Asia.
1: Yeah, because growing up, we, we know that our own currency is controlled in a way. Yeah. And then we pay attention to FX every day, right? Where's dollar yen or right. dollar yuan that every day? And when I went to the United States for college, I realized, oh, people don't really think about that. Yeah. It's just dollar based. Yeah. And then it's very easy for you to exchange to Euro or anything else. Yeah. And you travel. But for us, um, at least in China and I think, you know, in other capital controlled countries like mm-hmm. uh, Korea or Elsewhere, then you inherently think about that. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, I need to go travel. I need to make sure whatever FX I exchange is within my quota, and I yeah. can get it. And but then now you, you give me this, and I think that's what uh, made a lot of the digital payment very popular yep. for tourism. Right? I can just scan a QR code, and I'll deduct from my RMB account, and it's very convenient. And then now I think crypto is one step further than that. Right, Mm -hmm. it's even faster, even cheaper, and for a lot of them, it's just an alternative way. Mm -hmm. So I I think, to your point, right, it is because there's an inherent demand or awareness, uh, and we think about money uh, in a fundamentally different way.
0: Yeah, I mean, it seems like, in some ways, like I I remember with the when the internet itself became a a mass society thing, and like, I don't think people thought a lot about like, you know, kind of information and communications as like these big kind of like systems or what it meant to have freedom of, of using those. But then the internet brought that into more people's attention, like everywhere. Like people experience something in terms of connecting to the whole world and all of the world's information. And it was like transformative for people. And it feels like we're not quite there with crypto, but for the people who have red-pilled, <laughs> right? That they are there. They're like, oh my God, this is such a different world. And it just it feels like maybe in the coming few years, right, maybe everyone's red pilled or whatever it is. But basically, like there'll be more dialogue about money in the world and what money is and what role it plays and, and how you can interact with it. And this sort of birth of this you know, Internet of money is like just changing like, society and, and humanity's awareness on these things. And as we were saying, like sort of Asia is at the front edge of that, but the whole world yeah. as well.
1: And I think it's just a question of what blockchain or Web3, as we stated, in terms of the value creation and value transfer, it's in a very different mechanism. And I think with a lot of the more value being created digitally in a digital fashion and we interact digitally, we're already doing that. And then I think that will also have um, everybody participating in the so-called maybe digital virtual world and metaverse, right? To think about, okay, what is the currency of that world? And how do we think about the most efficient or optimal way of different sort of, of, of the economy? Mm-hmm. And I think that's very different than, than us like in Web2 era that we currently we interact with other people online, but we're so physically sort of constrained right. to one, one place, right? And having to, I think we all travel a lot in our wallet, just all different kinds of currencies. And so I think they'll they will at least have the younger generation, the Gen Zs and the beyond, yeah. think about it very differently.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely see that. Definitely see that. Interesting segue. I'll kind of come over to some of the Amber you know, things that are happening. You're one of the, I think, significant firms that has made a huge investment in these major, you know, sports franchise partnerships, brand partnerships, and sort of, I think in some ways, like trying to use that as a kind of connection to more mass awareness on, on these technologies. Talk a little bit about the kind of thesis behind that and what, what you're specifically doing and what that might translate to in terms of some of the things that Amber's building.
1: Sure and that's something that we're, we're so excited about. I think us as more of a financial services firm within digital assets, we've focused a large part of our, our history just focusing on providing institutional grade uh, financial services for anyone that wants to be a part of the digital asset space. But then I I think we realize a lot of opportunities lie beyond that. It's not just digital wealth. It's part of it. But I think it goes beyond to digital lifestyle, exactly what we were talking about earlier. I think sort of the the way that we interact, the way we create value or transfer value will be very different going forward. And how do we build the right infrastructure to support that as well? And I think by starting with working a lot of the, the global... Uh, renowned brands, different sports brands, or even sort of other uh, consumer brands, then that's opening the gateway to having more users being aware of the space and, and participating in it. Not and not having to realize, oh, I'm doing anything within crypto. Maybe it's just, oh, I you're a Chelsea football fan or a Atlético Madrid fan. Then by looking participating in this live stream, then you'll get maybe a NFT mm-hmm. badge, and then you can use that to unlock so many other things yeah. that come with, or you don't even have to realize it is so-called on a blockchain. Right. It's just something, a new sort of badge or ID for you. And I think by doing this, it's going to make it a lot more smoother and easier mm-hmm. for the mass to really come uh, into the space. And that's one thing that we're, we're building on and very excited about, um, looking at more partnerships because we think there we have to create more real demand and more use cases before everything else um, really catch up as well. It doesn't matter if all of us are just focusing on building infrastructures, for example, right? we're all just building on USDC and stablecoin, but no one is really using or transacting with it, then, then I think the growth is very limited. So yeah. how do we together really find the real use cases down the road?
0: Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, I think, you know, we have this kind of concept that the idea of like a dollar digital currency and and programmable dollars on the internet, and it's all very powerful and, you know, moving money very easily, you know, safely, fast, cheap, these all sound good. But I think the really exciting thing is, you know, when it unlocks new utility, right? And I think You've heard me talk about kind of how do we move from the speculative value phase to the utility value phase of crypto and stablecoins can play a really key role in that. What are some of the big categories of utility that you see happening, whether it's like enterprise or retail or financial services themselves being built up using stablecoins, What are some of the things that you're, you're seeing from your vantage point?
1: Yeah, I think there are two folds, at least from where um, Amber is sitting. So first and foremost, still on the financial, financial asset piece, or for a lot of the more traditional financial institutions to come into the space, they, they need sort of a segue, right? And stablecoins provide that for them. I and mean, I think now they're understanding the different nuances of different types of stablecoins and how they really work and being able to access it globally. So I think this is this is one of the use cases, and and I think that this pocket of the liquidity is going to be huge, mm-hmm. uh, just because the sheer size of these financial institutions uh, globally. But then I think in terms of uh, mass adoption, in terms of user numbers, as opposed to maybe volume, right? Mm-hmm. Then that I think that comes from maybe the more consumer side of the things, and that's by integrating with with brands, and and similar to what I mentioned earlier, right? They they're just using Stablecoin because it's already so integrated into the ecosystem to whatever it is they, they need to do. They yeah. don't need to think twice right. about it. It's smooth. It's already in their wallet or whatever yeah. apps they're using. I mean, they can buy the things they want or, or experience the things they want. And I think it's, it has happened in that fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to create a good UI UX first. Yeah. We can't count on average user to go through totally. so many hurdles yeah, totally, or to yeah. try something.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's been, I talk about this in a lot of different ways, like this will become mainstream when the technology behind it disappears, right? When people are just interacting, like the example you gave of a, a live stream and, and these sort of creden- or like entitlements that just happen to be digital tokens underneath, but people aren't focused on like, oh, this is crypto, right? But with things like the kind of consumer payment experience and, you know, like stable coins right now, like USDC are kind of like a base layer. It's this, very secure, you know, powerful model, but from a kind of consumer experience layer. Do you see and maybe talk about this from the perspective of the Asia market as well? Do you see some of the established payments companies in Asia or Southeast Asia or or other do you see them connecting up to blockchain rails? Do you see them connecting up and starting to support things like stablecoins as something that will happen
1: in the next couple of years? I think so from just even the conversation we've been having already, uh, more from the perspective of Amber offering our infrastructure as a service, Mm -hmm. as a Y-labeling service, Mm -hmm. to a lot of the the traditional FinTech or the the Web2 FinTech apps for them to... Trad FinTech. I know. (laughs) (laughs) To be able to access crypto or provide crypto-related services to their users because they see the demand from their user as well. And then, so I think they're already very actively thinking about this, but now maybe still limited to okay, how do I add a simple sort of trade or swap function on the app in addition to maybe the stocks Mm -hmm. or the equities they could trade or FX they could trade? But I think eventually they'll think about more use cases they're more integrated with their own Mm -hmm. ecosystem, right? Because every one of these super apps are actually an ecosystem of their own. They have their own sort of payment or e-commerce and all of that within them. And then I think they'll start to realize that in addition to using stable coins, or even thinking about how to gamify their own points or loyalty Mm -hmm. points and could unlock a lot of value for their users. And I think from where we sit, we'd like to see a more interoperable uh, ecosystem across all these apps, right? So my grab points can get me something else other than using on grab, for example. And and I think it's up to all of us to Mm -hmm. really continue to have this discussion with them. And I think we need to also a way for the right market timing
0: yeah. as well, right? Yeah. So, yeah. The building blocks are there, right? So, and the technology keeps improving. I want to come back to the the kind of the current market environment a little bit. And I know Amber has played a important role in, you know, facing the markets and facing a lot of the institutional counterparties. And, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in, in hearing your thoughts on, you know, the the most recent challenges, you know. What do you think characterizes this? I think I heard you earlier talking about this is a kind of credit market failure. and talk a little bit about kind of what you see as as sort of the the failures in a sense, and then we could talk about the path forward.
1: Yeah, I think because a lot of the players in the space are still quite quite new, um, they I'm not sure if people really understand the risk reward mm-hmm. in a way that that they should. And there's a lot of sort of um, influence in the market that seemingly where I have a lot of a lot of success and people Mm -hmm. would believe that oh you have a lot of Twitter followers therefore you must be legitimate Mm -hmm. but I think at the end of the day then doesn't necessarily it's not necessarily true Mm -hmm. and I'm glad to see that a lot more sort of um, traditional finance uh, credit risk or risk Mm -hmm. management experts coming to the space but I think that they're, they're still new right so whatever happened in the past we see because crypto space just grows so much. You have a platform that all of a sudden just came into a very high AUM, maybe mm-hmm. more than they know how to deploy. And then they might have been forced to make a lot of decisions that they didn't really understand the risk of in hindsight. And because of this rapid growth and when market is good and dandy, nobody mm-hmm. really thinks about risk management, but if, when things go wrong, it happens in a death spiral right way. And that's what we we saw um, and that's what I think we'll continue to see but with every market cycle we, we learned something different um, I think a couple of years ago it' was maybe more sort of risk management in terms of um, on the operational on the infrastructure side. Mm-hmm. I think most of it coming from traditional trading space didn't realize that exchanges could just go down right, right. And, or just yeah unresponsive. And then you learn that, and then you improve on your own internal systems. I think at this time is more sort of the the credit risk mm-hmm. or counterparty risk that people probably didn't think about. And then also just seeing how sort of incestuous, for lack of a better word, this yeah. industry is. You think you're
0: interconnected. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. you're
1: facing one counterparty. You think that was it, right? But yeah. then they might be facing. You know, all the other ones.
0: The amount of rehypothecation that was actually happening in the crypto lending markets, I think, you know, we're, we're now seeing how much that is. Part of the issue there is about disclosure and transparency. And, you know, in a traditional, like in, say, the regulated securities industry, right, you know, you've got all kinds of reporting obligations and record-keeping obligations, and you've got, you know, assurance firms that are, you know, signing off on things. It's not perfect because there's blow-ups in TradFi all the time as well. But, uh, you know, it's, it seems like at the heart of the issue in terms of, like, credit risk is about, you know, these sort of information asymmetries and, and disclosure and transparency. And now that, as you said, maybe more traditional risk managers are cu- coming into the space, what do you see evolving there do you, do you see you know is this a place where there's like a whole new build now that like the big the big build over the next couple of years is like significant enhancements in in what we do in terms of like risk management and but even like the shift from kind of off chain to on chain in terms of how this happens
1: yeah I think this is something that that we've been thinking over the last few months right we internally at Amber we have very stringent risk policy that we don't take on any credit risk to mm-hmm. any other counterparties. If anything, we tend to be net borrowers in the market. Mm-hmm. And that has really played well for us yeah. and, and with this move. But then that's not also not inherently very e- efficient mm-hmm. if, say, there's no presence of Credit market in this space, yeah. right? Then you know where does liquidity come from, right? So how, how do we best solve that? Maybe it is moving a lot of the information on chain, mm-hmm. maybe in a zero knowledge proof way that I don't need to know how much you have, or mm-hmm. but I need to know maybe who your counterparties are and how we can actually evaluate it, and maybe coming up with the standard credit market, even yeah. like different credit rating or yeah. tiers. I think we all, at least the the bigger trading shops, we all have our internal credit rating, mm-hmm. but then we're only privy to the information. That we know. Yeah. So how do we maybe leverage the traditional finance way of mm-hmm. the traditional markets way of having a, a credit rating and then and having more transparency, whether it is mandated by regulatory requirements mm-hmm. or just sort of self-driven, that will help the entire market unlock more liquidity.
0: Yeah, it seems like. This is a huge opportunity, actually, right, in these sort of situations. There's like a huge opportunity for kind of a crypto-native kind of credit intermediation to actually come up with models that are superior to the traditional financial system. And I know uh, there are all these emerging kind of next-generation DeFi protocols that are basically trying to provide various forms of, you know, under collateralized or uncollateralized credit provisioning. And it's a really interesting space. A lot of that is all USDC based. So we get to see a lot of that and what, what's happening there. But related to that, I'm, I'm interested like to so far, a lot of the kind of credit markets and lending markets have really been a little bit like, you know, they've been very like trading and markets focused and which makes sense because that, that's sort of core function of, of markets. But I'm interested from an institutional perspective, if you see some of those innovations that are coming as really finding their way into commercial finance and finding their way into trade finance and sort of what I'll kind of call real economy uh, financial uh, applications.
1: I don't think I've seen anything that's that's been very sort of well-tested yet. Right. But what we're seeing, at least from the DeFi boom, is that, that that's actually a very interesting way of um, creating different sort of risk buckets for different LP, uh, liquidity providers or different sort of even consumer users to use, right? I, I can create a pool and mm-hmm. say that, you know, there's the senior or the junior tranche, yeah. and you can earn different returns depending on your risk. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, you very quickly have a pool of funding that you can use either to maybe lend out to others or to finance. Mm-hmm. And, and I think some of the projects are already building on that because it gives a project or a team very easy and, and quick access to pool of capital. If right. you want to do it through lending through banks, right? That's just right. probably not going to happen. It's going to be perhaps more expensive, mm-hmm. but then because there's this sort of DeFi farming or pool idea mm-hmm. that you can quickly pull together capital and put it to better use. And of course, this still relies on every pool participant or, or the retail users to properly under, understand the risk. That might be the harder part, yeah. so there's a lot of education that needs to happen so they understand, okay. I'm actually okay taking this risk and I know that what I'm doing.
0: The internet's, you know, dealt with these issues in other categories, right? Where reputation systems and and community-based, you know, kind of reputation systems have made it so that, like, I can go on to a marketplace like Alibaba or Amazon and I can find uh, someone who makes a product or a seller and there's a history and and there's still fraud, of course, but, like, there's so much there and that I can have confidence that I can basically in an open global market directly transact with someone who's created a product in a completely different part of the world. And I and I have confidence that it will arrive and like that sort of very long tail, as people say of markets, we have that in transportation and in hospitality and in, in commerce more broadly and in content and all these areas. And like, it just seems like that could be applied to capital markets and debt capital markets. And you could actually see a very, very long tail of kind of, you know, essentially like these pool operators really just being highly, highly specialized in a specific topic, subject matter, geography, and then, you know, leveraging on-chain reputation and other things to actually make it so that people can have the confidence that they could allocate capital into these and and it would meet a real, a real commercial or Household need.
1: Yeah, and I love this idea. Right? And it's actually interesting because all of this, the data itself is on chain or is, is public yeah. and it's digital. Right. And there's so much we could, we could work on the back of that, right? we have the entire history of the blockchain. Yeah on the ledger, and I think it's interesting that you mentioned sort of the, the social credit aspect, yeah. and that's already super well developed in, mm-hmm. in China. Mm-hmm. And because right, by leveraging all the digital payments, they see everything that you do. Yeah. And then in a similar fashion, we can do the exact same for anything that's happening on-chain, the and mm-hmm. therefore build a more informed sort of uh, model on the back of that. Obviously we can obviously get the, the data, or the identity yeah. in a way. but. I think that that's what is exciting about this.
0: Yeah, for sure. And we're interested in this idea that credit intermediation doesn't have to be banks, right? There can be these sort of these new kinds of roles. It's kind of like structured finance and, and things like that. But like you can imagine it being very efficient and very scalable with a lot of participants informing these, these yeah, kinds of markets. You don't
1: need to be a bank with massive balance sheet right. to do exactly, that. Exactly,
0: yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, also for us, and maybe we'll turn a little bit to stablecoins for a minute. So one of the things that I'd be interested in in hearing your perspective on is is really around stablecoins specifically. And, you know, I think there's a sort of philosophy behind what we've done with USDC and this sort of general idea of kind of sound money, which exists in crypto, but this idea specifically of like full reserve money. And we've sort of tried to design a model where essentially, right, a dollar token is almost like just straight government debt obligation. Instead of a fractional reserve of a bank, it's, it sort of has this. And I'm interested just from your perspective as well, just with within the Asia market, you know, how do people think about dollar stablecoins? Do they think about the kind of philosophy behind it or what it is and what kind of risk it represents and and how are you seeing that evolve here as well?
1: Yeah, so I think it's interesting to see from the Asia perspective because their own... Base money is oftentimes not USD, and for them, I think they're first exposed to the tether, and they've been holding that for many years. And even though there were events where it was depegging, it still has been stable mm-hmm. for the better of the uh, most part. And they they just think of it as another sort of FX that they they own. Um, and I don't think anyone's really digging that deep into of Tether's reserve and all that. I think they've also gotten better in terms of being more transparent with the market. But whether you believe it or not, right, it's also Mm -hmm. up to you. Versus on the more institutional players, I think they either buy their own sort of risk requirement or their own preference that they prefer USDC for the same reasons that you mentioned. It is one-to-one backed, fully reserved by USD. And it is safe and secure, and I think Circle. I mean, you yourself, right? Um, in terms of branding, I think the, the institutional players definitely prefer that, and then they use it as their gateway into mm-hmm. digital assets. They'll exchange their dollar or you know anything else into dollar stablecoin USCC in this case before they go into Bitcoin or, or other things, and over. Here at Amber and I think a few other platforms as well, we're also providing interest or yield on top of dollar staple coin that mimics sort of what you could have earned with dollar, but even higher because of the structural yield pickup opportunities within digital asset space. Um, So that itself has been a very popular product within um, the institutional players as well. Uh, But if you look at retail, then I think a lot of them just see whatever is available. They could be attracted by the 20% return, um, right? I don't think they really think about risk and return in the same way that maybe the trained professionals do. So a lot of times it is about branding, it's about marketing, and just even by, you know, being on top of money, they realize, oh, there are different fear-backed cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. There are crypto collateral backed, crypto stable coins. And there are even, you know, the more funkier versions yeah. of those. I right? understand the difference of that is is already pretty difficult. And I think a lot of them who already had, for example, Tether to start with, then they're sort of comfortable sitting that. And then and it's very liquid. They can exchange for other things. For new or incumbent stable coins to penetrate this market, it has to be as accessible as Tether, at least. And then maybe there is something else to it. And then they'll start to see, oh, it is actually uh, perhaps a safer alternative Mm -hmm. in that regard.
0: Well, we continue to make progress and have been grateful for the work we do with Amber as well. Annabelle, this has been a great conversation. Just really a pleasure to have this with you. And thanks for joining the money movement here today.
1: Thanks for having me.